Your lips can do a whole lot more than kiss. Your lips express love and speak your truth. Plump your lips with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE for natural-looking results that are completely and uniquely you. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. This week, my guest is Nick Shaw. Nick is the founder and CEO of Renaissance Periodization, also known on social media as RP Strength. RP Strength is a diet and fitness firm dedicated to assisting members in achieving their health, athletic performance, and body goals, evidence-based techniques, not the bro science you commonly see on social media. Nick has directly trained countless world-class athletes to include Rich Frowning, longtime CrossFit champion. Nick is a former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter, and he's personally helped me prep for expeditions and maintain my overall health. This episode is recorded in front of a live audience at Whiskey Tango Foxtrot in Austin, Texas. And without further ado, here's my interview with Nick. Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. I'm Mike Sorelli, your host. Today we're joined by Nick Shaw. Uh, I was about to say fitness influencer, but he is not a fitness influencer. He is a fitness expert. And you guys will see as we get further into the, uh, the, the episode that he is. And firstly, I've utilized his services because, again, he puts out science-based, uh, not only training regimens, but uh, diet. But Nick is the co-founder and current CEO of Renaissance Periodization, also known on social media as RP Strength. Again, go check out the website at the end of this podcast. If you're looking for a training program, you're already serious into the sport or, or, or intermediate to advanced, they can definitely take you to the next level as well as uh, nutrition is the uh, the sweet spot. But Nick, thank you for joining us. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. This is uh, really great to be here down in Austin. Of course. And we, we already hooked you up with uh, a pair of boots, which we'll Dude. show at the end. Awesome. I can't wait to wear them. Check them um, out. So let's, for the listeners, let's get into your background. Where you were born, raised, what what led you down this path into the, the fitness industry? Yeah, I was born in the great state of Michigan. So born and raised there. I went to school at the University of Michigan. Uh, I have an older brother and older sister. And my brother's four years older than me and was always into high school sports and I watched him train, go to practice, and it was just something that I always wanted to do. And we had one of these, you might appreciate this, in our basement, we had one of those weight sets, one of those real skinny, you know, benches. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, oh, the, yeah. old, the old, oh, the yeah. old skinny, yeah. Sand weights, all mm-hmm. that, like the bar that maybe weighed like five pounds. So a funny story, I remember thinking that I was kind of like a big deal, right? Because I could put a 45 on each side of that, you know, it weighs nothing though. And then going into the weight room at school for the first time ever and the actual 45 pound bar, I just get buried. I'm like, oh, snap. So 
Yeah, I've just always been into it, I guess. Um, you know, I think it helps being the, a younger sibling. You have kind of someone to look up to, someone to, that you want to emulate. So you were the, uh, the youngest? Yep. What, what did you folks do? Oh, man. My, my dad worked like uh, tool and die his, his whole life, just always working on his feet. Um, one of the hardest working people, you know, in the entire world, very, very blue collar. Uh, my mom worked a lot of different various jobs, waitress to receptionist to stay-at-home mom, you know, kind of always doing whatever she could for her kids. So, yeah, just, man, I had a, a you know, really great growing up, I guess, just really hardworking parents set a really great example for us. What I'm hearing is uh, a good American family. Hell yeah. Wait, so what, what, what in particular did your brother play in, in high school? That uh, baseball and basketball. Yeah, baseball, basketball. That's about right. Um, yeah, and I just remember him lifting and watching him work out. And I was like, man, that seems really cool. How, you know, how do I do that? And he just kind of got me involved early. And I, w- I was kind of hooked. I was really fascinated with the whole idea of you can start out with, with really nothing. And if you work really hard and you just keep showing up, keep being consistent, keep putting in the work, you know, you can very visibly change yourself and you can make yourself better. And I'm really kind of fascinated with that whole idea of, you know, getting better self-improvement. What age did you start, you say, so you start lifting weights? About 13. That, that's interesting. I've always heard of within our family, this is like growing up in the 80s, 90s. Yeah, I just dating myself. Um, we were always told you can't lift weights until you're 18 because it stunts your growth. Any truth to that whatsoever? Yeah, I don't think so. Not if you're really doing it responsibly and not, not going too crazy. And I mean, let's be honest, if I'm 13 years old, it's not like I'm doing anything super crazy. I'm, you know, probably mostly just doing bench press and curls, right? Like that's what everyone wants to do, right? You just, you just want to show off. The glamour, glamour muscles. Yeah, of course. Of course. So did, you, did you play any sports in high school as well? Yeah, it's really funny because most people look at me now. They're like, oh, you played football, right? And I was like, well, actually, I was a distance runner. Yeah. So I was a distance runner, did some basketball. I uh, did track. That was probably my main thing was track. But so a funny story about the distance running. And, and this is kind of really, I think maybe when I figured out the whole idea of hard work and how it relates to success, I was a terrible distance runner my freshman year. Uh, I think our top seven were like, quote unquote, varsity. And we had nine people. I, I did not run varsity my freshman year. And then our coach told us after track ended before the, I guess, cross country season started in the fall. He's like, all right, your goal is to run 100 miles in total. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I'm just someone that like, if there's a plan laid out, like I'm, I'm going to do it. Right. Like, if that's what you do. There's a plan. You do it. Duh. And we showed up the first day of, you know, cross country, my sophomore year. And I was running with, with the top people from the year before. And I'm just like looking around, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And come to find out, I was like basically one of two people on the entire team that actually did what they were supposed to. And then like something kind of clicked that day for me. I'm like, huh, well, I definitely am not genetically blessed. But if I do the things that other people aren't willing to do, maybe I have a chance. And that was like a light bulb moment for me that, that really kind of flipped the switch for me of just loving the gym. And I remember the greatest compliment I probably ever received was I was called a gym rat by my uh, high school track coach. So gym rat in the sense that you were unlike a lot of track athletes lifting heavyweight. No, well, I mean, lifting weights, doing bench press, squats, things along those lines. Yeah, I was always the biggest cross-country runner. Usually these folks would be, you know, 130, 140 pounds, and here I am, like 160, 170, uh, you know, could probably bench like two plates, which like in high school, that's a really big deal. That's a, that's a huge deal. And, and so, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a great distance runner because I weighed 25 pounds heavier than everyone else. Like, you know, it's like carrying a weight vest. I mean, you, yeah. you, know, you know how that is. But uh, usually I was, and I wasn't like a fast, super fast sprinter either. So I kind of made my living in like the middle distance events, which more or less are the events that really suck and no one really wants to do. So I was like, well, sign me up for that. So. But in middle distance, we're talking 800? 400, 800, 400. yeah. Mm-hmm. When, when did the bug hit you? When did, when did you know you were hooked on weightlifting? I know, when I was about 15 or 16. And I remember because one Christmas I requested from my parents 
uh, an actual bench and barbell set, with, you know, 300 pounds of weights. And I remember getting that for Christmas and I th- thinking like, you know, holy shit, this is the best Christmas present I could ever imagine. And those weights are still in my parents' basement. So. Were you one of those kids that were picking up the, uh, the magazines? Remember the, the day oh, when the fitness yes. magazines were used? Yeah, 100%, man. And it's really funny because I remember there was an ESPN magazine of David Boston. Do you remember David Boston? No. So he was a wide receiver for Ohio State, which is really funny because I'm a Michigan guy. So you'd think I wouldn't really be interested in Ohio State people. He was a genetic freak, 6'5", 220, ran like a 4, 340, you know, 5% body fat. And I just remember reading an article and seeing his picture. And I basically, I cut that out and I put it down in my parents' basement. And I'm like, I'm probably never going to reach that, but that, like, I, I want to do whatever I can to look anything like that. To, to look like that in yes. terms of physique. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, did you get there? No. <laughs> no, never. And, and his name again was? David Boston. Yeah, he was a wide receiver, played in the NFL for like a decade for, the, I think, the Chargers, Arizona Cardinals. I'm, I'm going to have to look this up in the pictures. I always think that's one of the worst things. It's great to have a role model and to understand that their genetics are so drastically different that you will never look like that. You've got to figure out genetically where you can get. Yeah, and that just goes back to the whole idea of, like, yeah, I might not ever look like that, but how, how far can I get? How far can I push myself to my own limits? And I don't necessarily know what that answer is, but I want to try to find out. So eventually high school comes to an end. You choose Michigan. Is, is, is the University of Michigan in your blood? Is, it a, is that a family thing? It's in my blood. Uh, I'm the first person in my family, I think, to ever go to U of M, but it's absolutely in my blood. Oh, I can tell. If you follow your, your Instagram, you are diehard uh, Wolverine. Yes, sir. And you guys finally beat Ohio State, right, this year? Was that the... Hell yes, we did. Finally. That game. I wasn't at it. Um, I was actually... Uh, we have a mountain house up in um, you know North Carolina, and I kind of jokingly said, I think we're going to have to go there every single year now. So, sorry, family, but we're going to be up there every single year for the Michigan-Ohio State game. So. Because it's a tradition now. It was, it was yeah. the fact that you yeah. guys were there. Knock, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, you know, got to do what we can. So, you chose to major in uh, sports management. Yep. Was a good portion of that major also? You know, some some majors are they call it kinesiology. Was, I mean, was the fitness component a big part of the sports management? Totally. I just always grew up sports fan. Knew I wanted to do something involved in sports and it wasn't until probably about my junior year that rather than sports related, I wanted to do something specifically in fitness just because I just really got hooked on uh, uh, Michigan's where I met my buddy, co-founder of RP. We met in the weight room and he kind of got me hooked. He's like, hey, you should try out this you know, club that I'm running. I just set up our Michigan powerlifting club, did that. And man, I mean, I was, I was hooked from day one. And that's I already kind of had the bug where I just love training in general, but that was when the bug for sort of specifically powerlifting, bodybuilding, whatever you want to call it, really hit me. It was like my sophomore year in college. So that's when you turned it on. Yeah. That's when I was like, I want to do, you know, that's my calling. That's what I want to do the rest of my life. Something fitness related. Absolutely. Did, did you actually start competing in college? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I competed. I don't want to say I competed well, but I competed. <laughs> both powerlifting, physique competitions, or yep. was there a specific focus? Yeah, both. Yeah, both. Do those usually go hand in hand? No, not necessarily, but I just want to kind of try out both and see what I liked more. And, you know, they're both hard, but in sort of equally different ways. Because the guys who do physique, you, you, you know, often you go down that path, you're sacrificing strength to some regard. A little bit. It's, uh, it's very hard in the sense that you just, 
powerlifting is really just it's hard because you're training and you're in the gym for a couple hours a day like don't get me wrong that's hard but bodybuilding is 24 7 because you have to so closely monitor what you eat that there's no ever getting away from it because if you don't it's going to show up it's very very evident right like you're standing on stage you don't have much there to hide so you can't do too much about it it's amazing how the workout regimen or generally accepted workout regimen is different for just whatever your focus is like you've heard the phrase the worst thing a football player can do is look in the mirror yeah yeah no i mean that's actually a really big component of of training is specificity and you have to train specifically for what you want to actually compete in so there's a reason if you look at all the different sports folks are probably training a little bit differently that's because if you want to be really good at sprinting well you're probably doing a lot of sprinting and you're probably training specifically for that if you want to be very good at distance running, your training is a heck of a lot different. There's just the idea, the principle, the training principle of specificity. Very, very, very interesting. So college comes to an end. You've met your future co-founder. Had you, I mean, were you guys discussing a business plan at that point or you just went your separate ways because you eventually ended up in New York City? Yeah. So he was a couple of years ahead of me in school, but he had graduated with his master's in strength and conditioning from Appalachian State and said, hey, I'm moving to New York City. I'm going to be a trainer. Do you have any interest in this? I said, I don't know what I want to do, but yeah. And that's, I'd never been to New York, went out there, interviewed, got the job. We both moved out there and I just knew that we could, we would help be helping people train. And then we could sort of dedicate ourselves to training. And you know, I'm 21 years old. So I'm like, New York City, sure. Like, let's do it. That's it. And what was the job then? Personal trainer. Uh, Where? Yeah, a little little, little gym, private gym in New York City. Now, were you living in the city? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had, um, when our first apartment, we had three people living in a one-bedroom apartment. So I was going to say, making, making a, a personal fitness uh, trainer salary living, living in New York, that's got to be a little, uh, little hard. Yeah. So my buddy slept on the couch. There was one bedroom. And then there was like a home office where you could put up one of those like little mini walls. And that's where our other roommate slept so we kind of had like three distinct parts and that's you know how we live for a year I'm, I'm, some of the best years of your life I, I don't have any regrets about that i got to do exactly what i wanted to do so it was awesome it, it's amazing how simple your life is when you're young i because i remember living in the barracks in the marines but we did not make much money as a marine but those were some of the best times where somebody had a car you would all pile in leave the base on friday and come back on sunday and you watch cautiously how much you spent on alcohol uh, at the bars because you you could run through your paycheck quickly. But. I remember one time I lost my Metro card or I lost my wallet actually. And I legitimately didn't know. I was like, I, I don't know how I'm actually going to get a new Metro card. And I, I somehow was able to get a refund or something. But like, yeah, that, that's, there, there was no extra money. It was, it was tight. Very tight. Uh, that, that, that reminds me of the Marines. I lost my one debit card. This is this is 1998. Uh, put it in the machine. Machine never gave it back. Called the number, which I had to go to a pay phone. Called the number. They, nobody answered. And you have to get a haircut every Sunday. Rings. Well, I had no money to, to pay for a haircut, so a buddy just shaved my head uh, completely. Those were those were first world problems uh, in the early days. So, uh, how long did you live in New York? So I lived in New York for about six years, but uh, I want to say maybe after about a year or two, I left the gym that I was at and started training people on my own. And that was not too long after that is when we actually officially started RP. My buddy was, uh, he had left, he was going to get his PhD and he was training people online, which this is circa 2010, let's call it. So a long time ago, not, not a lot of people were doing online coaching back then. But he's like, hey, you should help me out because I, I have too many people wanting my help. 
I, I need your help. And so we joined forces and that's really more or less when RP started. And there were no grand intentions of thinking we'd ever become remotely well known. I mean, look at our name. Like, why would we ever choose a name like that if we thought we were going to be, you know, even a tiny bit successful? So yeah, we just honestly it just goes back to we knew that we loved fitness. We wanted to help people. And that was it. We kind of figure out the rest as we went along. So I've got to ask, where where did the name, who, who came up with the name, where did it come from? Yeah, we kind of both came up with it. So there's two parts, Renaissance. We wanted it to be sort of like the rebirth of, of, of evidence-based practices and fitness because back then there was just a lot of people kind of just doing random shit in the Bro gym. science. Bro science. And we would see that, but we would see like these people had obviously they were doing something right. But we just thought, well, what if we took these people with really good genetics and had them do evidence-based nutrition and training. Because if you take someone with good genetics and they have crappy maybe diet and training practices, they can still do very, very well. Don't get me wrong. But maybe to get to that next level, to really become the elite of the elite, there's something more that can be done. And so that's what really interested. So that's the Renaissance part. And the periodization part refers to, in sports science, it's you take one phase to successfully set up the next phase to be more productive. So for example, Winter Olympics were just not too long ago this year. You can imagine that the way these folks are training in the months leading up to the Olympics is a lot different than how they're training, you know, a year or two before. Like that's the idea of periodization. You don't just train the same year round. And we thought we could do the same with training and nutrition. So that's that part. And I'll also give a shout out there's a hedge fund in Long Island called Renaissance Technologies. And that was really kind of one of our inspirations because they didn't do what everyone else did in finance. They hired PhDs, they hired mathematicians, they hired some of the brightest and smartest people in the entire world. And they've sort of consistently beat the market and outperformed everyone else you know, almost every single year since like 1990. Jim Simons is the, the founder of, of Rentech. So we kind of drew upon that where like, we didn't want to just hire anyone to be a coach at RP. Like, no, no, no. All of our coaches are either PhDs in a field that relates to nutrition or training, or they're like a registered dietitian themselves. Like that, that's, that was our differentiator. You know, you bring up a good point of, especially with the advent of social media and what we see now is, I mean, there's some people on social media that are, they're beasts. I'll give it physique wise. They're, they're beasts. And it, whatever method they have or system they have works for them. But then when you see your workouts or they design a workout for you, you're like, what? This is either unsustainable. I'm going to get hurt. There's, there's no prime or reason to it. And so at the end of the day, it just, it doesn't work for anyone else. Yeah. There, there's a difference between being able to get results for yourself. And some people are successful in spite of what they do. Uh, and, and some people don't necessarily grasp that because they just see the end result of, oh, well, look at them. But can they relate or can they explain why it is that they're doing what they're doing? That's maybe an important test. Can they actually explain it? If not, well, maybe you should be a little skeptical. And then two, you could look at it. Well, can they duplicate those same results with other people that are not blessed with as good genetics? And if they can get results for other people, that's a pretty good sign. And then if they can explain the why and sort of, well, why are they doing the things that they're doing to themselves and for their clients? If they can start checking all those boxes, now the chances of them really know what they're doing are, are much, much higher. Let me, so I've got a issue. One, I do believe a, a trainer has to look the part. They, has, they, have, they have to practice what they, they, they preach. They have to live by example. If you go to a lot of these 
chain gyms and the certifications for the trainers are the certifications they get in what a week over a weekend um how for those those listening when they choose a trainer and i'm all about choosing a trainer i mean you work with seals we always go out and find the civilians that are the best the best shooters the best climbers the best parachutists we go train with them so for a beginner yeah absolutely use a great coach, mentor, trainer. How do you vet someone in, in whether they truly know what the hell they're fucking talking about? It, it, it's really tough. And I always like to say, I don't know anything about cars. I don't know anything about engines, whatever. I could very easily go to a mechanic and they could feed me a line of complete BS. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the difference. So when I think about folks out there that are looking at all these fitness influencers out there that you know, kind of look like they know what they're doing. How do you really decipher that? How do you break down? Well, one, can they, can they duplicate their results that they're getting? You know, if they're a coach, can they, do they have proven results? They have testimonials, all that stuff. That's principle of social proof. That's probably a good checkbox there. Two, do they have any formal education around it? If they do, that's probably another good thing. Those are probably two good areas to start looking into of, you know, should I trust this person or should I be a little bit skeptical about what, what it is they're doing? I want to get back to uh, New York six years. What, why, while you were there, you met your wife, Lori. Yeah. And so it's funny that you're saying that because if you want to hire a trainer, usually you want to hire someone that's very fit. And at the time, like I probably wasn't the most fit person in the world when I met my wife, but you know, obviously we could probably talk a good game and sort of knew what we were doing. Uh, so as you were saying that, I was kind of laughing in my head because I was like, well, maybe luckily my wife didn't have that same mindset because I wouldn't be where I am right now if, if that wasn't, if that was the case. So if, if I'm understanding this, Lori was a client? Yes, that's actually how I first met her. Yeah, she was a client. Yeah. Doesn't that violate some sort of uh, principles? That's that. No, that's the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, I don't think so in fitness. I don't think there's any rule like that. Uh, it's probably fairly common. So I don't know if that's good or bad. No, we're we're, we're, we're going to dissect this one. I mean, so how did how did she approach you? How did you, how did she find you as a trainer? Oh, uh, you know, I actually remember she invited me to some uh, to see Yankees games, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to go watch some Yankees games, of course. And you know, started hanging outside of uh, you know outside of the, the professional setting, and I was like, yeah. So you started with the training, and then she invited you to some Yankees games. So she she actually led the she, she crossed the line first the red line uh, and the sand. I like that story. Let's go with that. Let's yeah, go with yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Let's go with that. It, it was her, sure. Yeah, yeah. And she Lori is not here to defend herself, so we'll have to uh, do a uh, a second podcast and have Lori uh, join us. So you know, even then though, the, the fitness industry, whether online or not, is a it's it's saturated. That is a saturated market, and you guys are now a you know I'm not, I don't want to get into numbers, but a multi million dollar company that. Talk to me about starting out and building it to, to to where it is today. And as you're thinking about that, what what advice are you giving to those young entrepreneurs, whether regardless of any industry, especially the fitness industry who are trying to break in and build their own legacy? Yeah. So really our, our different differentiator was the idea of combining not only the academics, but the athletics. So the coaches that we hired, it wasn't good enough that you just had the academic credentials. You had to be an athlete yourself. So a lot of our coaches are you know world-class grapplers they are professional strongmen they compete themselves so it's it's one thing to walk the walk or to talk the talk and there's kind of easy ways to poke holes in arguments one way or the other if you only have one but when you have both there's i mean you have no argument against those folks because they're academically qualified, but they also are athletes themselves. They understand exactly what it takes to get results. 
And that is always what we wanted to do. That was essentially what RP was founded on, being evidence-based, being able to walk the walk and talk the talk. Like we live, eat, and breathe this stuff ourselves. You know, for example, our app, I use our app every single day. It is just part of who I am. It is incredibly authentic because I love this stuff. So it's very easy to go out there and showcase it with other people because it's just part of who I am and what I do. So that's the differentiator? That was the differentiator for you guys is that you actually basically created a team of one. And I, I know you've got some PhDs and, and, and a lot of masters within your 20, 20 plus PhDs, uh, five or six registered dietitians. It's the best staff in the fitness industry, hands down. Yeah. You say that with confidence because 100%. There's something to, to, to say to that, if, especially if you're attracting those type of folks. But the fact that they, beyond it's academia, those who don't do, teach, yeah, yeah. but they've also lived the life. Yeah, exactly. That's what I want. And also, I mean, I will say that, again, if we go back, we've been in business about a decade now. We're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. We were maybe a little early on the scene in the whole like social media game. I remember late 2012, early 2013, someone telling me, hey, you should start an RP Instagram account. And I remember thinking, no, I don't want to. Who's going to do that? Like, Who's going to care? And then I did, you know, and here we are, you know, we've got 600,000 plus followers. And I'm like, I guess that was a pretty good idea. So there's maybe something to to that in that it's incredibly saturated now. So really you have to think, how are you going to stand out? And again, this goes back to our differentiator was that combination of academics and athletics and not everyone has that. And so it's just... It's, 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 you know, it's a multitude of factors, of course, but I think those are two of the, maybe two of the bigger ones. Now it seems like you're judged on the quality of your content, you know, the, the, and, and I'm not saying the, the, the words that are coming out, but it, almost the background music, uh, and that's what, you know, drives followers for a lot of these, uh, these fitness uh, influencers. It's not the, the fitness part, it's the artistic part. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's an interesting game out there right now. It's interesting social media dynamic, that's for sure. And you just got to be able to, to change and adjust and adapt. And, you know, what are you going to be doing next? It's, it's been an adjustment for me because, as you know, Dan Luna is a, is a mutual friend. Dan was at uh, Dev Group as well. And we just, you didn't have social media. Yeah, yeah. It's not that you weren't allowed. It just, maybe it was frowned upon, but you just, you didn't care. It's not, that's not what we did. And then you get into the business world and you realize it is a mechanism. It is a sales funnel. It is a brand builder. And so I actually ran our Instagram account for the longest time up until about a year ago. And I always just sort of approached it as uh, it's like a puzzle because you'll think that something is going to be the best content in the world. And then you post it and it just tanks. And then you post something that you're like, man, this is just really silly. And it takes off. And so you just have to I don't know. I just always kind of had like a, a fun and a game approach to it of trial let's, and let's just trial and error yeah. and let's see what sticks. And man, I don't know if it's going to stick or not, but I keep doing little tests and all the feedback that I get is going to kind of point me in the right direction. So you can't be too set in your ways and you got to be able to lean into certain things and not be too caught up of, oh, like I have to do this because it might not work. And what are you going to do? Just keep forcing it? It's almost like everything is an A-B test. Yeah, and you're oh, just, yeah. I had a great leader and he's still in the SEAL teams. In fact, he's leading the SEAL teams now. He said, hey, here's our key to success. We test a little, we learn a lot and we just keep on testing. It's like the second you stop testing, that's when you become irrelevant. That's when you become complacent. That's when you're no longer a, a value to your, uh, your organization. But I mean, this is the reason why for my companies, we all use Will Sharman. I've got two amazing women uh, in, in their early 20s, uh, Michelle Ballesteros and, and Naira Gonzalez, and they are studying the algorithms because I guess 
correct me if I'm wrong, Will, algorithms are changing almost weekly and every day. And so they're always paying attention to that. So yeah. I just follow their lead. Tell me what to film, I'll do it. And they, they do the rest, but I, I will never be able to gain an expertise in the in that, that arena. Yeah. So I just rely on the people that know what the hell they're fucking doing. Yeah, and I mean, that's really how the whole like social media advertising works. You're going to have... 10, 15, 20, 30 different creatives. For somebody to say or to think that they know definitively what is going to work and what's not going to work out, they're, they're full of it. That's why you have so many different creatives and you just put them out there and you just test because you might not think this one will work, but it does the best out of all of them. Well, you're not going to get rid of that one, but some of the ones you think might work and they tank, those go to the wayside. You use the ones that work, you start funneling that way, and then you keep kind of just repeating that process every few months you just kind of keep using the stuff that does work. Would you say that's the key to your business model as well? You guys were, were always testing the, the the model, your approach, bringing on people that knew how they're, you know, what the hell they're talking about. Well, it, I think this is a good analogy to fitness. What's the main thing you do in fitness? You're always trying to get better. There's always a little bit more you can do. You can always run a little faster. You can get a little bit stronger. You can add another rep, you know, all that stuff. It's kind of the same approach that we use, or, you know, hopefully it's kind of the culture of RP is let's not settle. Let's not be complacent. Let's always just try to keep getting a little bit better. The, and like, that's how we approach our app. It's not like we just released an app and then we never updated it again. It's no, no, no. It's very much out there in the real world. We get real world feedback from our clients. We've got a giant Facebook group where people can give us feedback literally instantly. So we have to be willing to listen to what they have to say. We have to be willing to change and adapt, go back to the drawing board, you know, keep iterating, keep it new versions out, more upgrades, uh, more new features, all that stuff, because that's that's kind of how the subscription model works. We're not going to just sit there. We're going to keep going. We're, we're going to keep getting better. Like that's just, that's in our DNA. You know, the, from what I've seen and started a couple companies now is that you know, you get emotionally attached. I'm sure you guys were emotionally attached to version one of the, the diet app. I mean, I mean that, that probably was the hardest phase to get it from, from a, a, a back of a napkin, a concept to actually out in the market. But I see so many people get so emotionally attached to their idea that they totally look past the customer feedback. And if 80% of the customers are saying, hey, we don't like this, they're like, well, the customers are wrong. There, there had to be some sort of, you guys had to probably initially fight that sense of one, you know what the hell you're talking about, but the customers are saying they don't like this aspect of what the customers are wrong. Yeah, I feel like that's almost the idea of if you are not sort of laughing at what you were doing a couple of years ago, maybe you're not on the right track. Because I look back at our you know, version one, our beta version of our app, and yeah, it's kind of comical. But like, we had to get it out there to test it to see if this was something people would actually like. And then, of course, we went back and we kept iterating and kept updating. And that's just how it is. And I remember thinking, you know, we, we came out with this update that was supposed to be, you know, all the feedback was from night shift folks. And they're like, hey, like we want to be able to, to, to program our schedules in a little bit easier. So we're like, oh, okay, awesome. We spent a lot of time working on that. And then we came out with that. And it kind of turns out that we had catered too much to that. And now it's kind of the 80-20 rule, right? So the 80% the of people that had, you know, quote unquote, normal schedules, well, now we made it harder for them. And we're like, oh, well, oh shit, that probably wasn't the right idea. So we had to figure out a way to, to navigate that and be able to do both. And so, yeah, it's just, there's always something more to do. And yeah, you can't get too caught up in thinking that, you know, it's one particular way. That's just not how it works. And, you know, maybe that's one of the pros of social media I don't think companies can kind of hide anymore. You have to be very willing and able to listen to what people have to say, change and adapt. Because if not, I mean, that's a great thing for customers. You can voice your concerns. Of course, it's a double-edged sword, but you have to be very mindful of it as a business.
I, I, so I like that. You got to write a second book on the fitness model and how it pertains or how it translates to running a, uh, a business. Yeah. I mean, it really, uh, I mean, there's a book, it's called the lean startup by Eric Rice, but that's kind of the whole idea of you get out an MVP, a minimum viable product. Iterate, you know, iterate. Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea is to get something out there to, to test it and to get feedback. You just keep doing that. You just keep going back to the drawing board. It's just this continual cycle of innovation and updates and new features and it really never stops because that's that's how the subscription model works if you're a subscriber to something why would you keep subscribing if they're not getting better that's an amazing book by the way and and i do prescribe to his method of you know so many products or services die because they just never get to market the paralysis through analysis and people just never make that leap to just say hey right now it's good enough to get to the market. You've got to iterate rapidly as that feedback is coming back. And again, it's the same thing with fitness. I'm not losing weight the way I thought I would, so I need to change something up. Iterate yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of, I think, folks that are maybe scared of failure. So they don't, they, they think it has to be perfect before they release something. And you have to be okay with accepting some of that failure or, you know, negative feedback. Because if you keep waiting around for something to quote unquote be perfect, I mean, that day's literally never going to come. I, I, I read it somewhere and, and, I, and I can't remember, but it, it's something like 80% of good ideas never make it to market because they just died. Process or analysis or the, the risk aversion to just take that final leap and get into them. So you've eventually leave New York. Are, are you married to Lori by this point? Yeah. At that point, we had uh, two small kids and two small kids living in New York City is kind of not super comfortable or great. So, and, and the, the beautiful thing about RP is I could kind of live wherever as long as I have internet. So we're like, why are we here? <laughs> so the model by this point, so this is what, 2015? Uh, 2015, by this point, the model is com- almost completely online. Yeah. We had probably 10 or 15 coaches and at that point, we had released an ebook which allowed us to reach more people, help more people. And that was um, another light bulb moment for us. This was several years before we had an app. And we wanted to figure out a way to scale the coaching model. So my buddy created these Excel diet templates that, again, they were by no means perfect. They were, if we look back, it's sort of comical to look at them. But man, oh man, did that prove the model that people wanted this. People wanted something like this. So instead of having to pay a coach several hundred dollars a month, you could go buy a digital product that costs a hundred dollars and you could use it and you could get phenomenal results. And, you know, a few months after we released those, people started posting their results on social media. And that's kind of when things really started to take off because we went from being able to help a couple hundred people, let's say, or, you know, maybe a thousand if we had, you know, 15 coaches to now we could help tens of thousands of people and it really kind of changed the game. You know, I have that PDF on my computer at home. I, I had that long before I met you. Well, I, th- I appreciate the support, man. But I think, well, I think we were supposed to pay for it. You made it to the SEAL community, made its way around the, uh, the SEAL community, but you know, was, I can't remember. It was a SEAL that sent it to me and they're, yeah. they're like, bro, you need to read this. Yeah, you know, and, and that really doesn't even bother me because if, you know, some people say, oh, like, aren't you mad? Like they didn't pay for it? Well, not really, because guess what? You know, here I am. How many years later? Like, how many people did we help that if we didn't have that, probably would have never even heard of RP. But like, maybe, yeah, they got it for free for somehow, right, whatever. But now we went from a circle of this many people. So now we had this many people. It, it was almost a, well, you guys had to know that once you put it into the interwebs, that it was going to get pirated. But it's almost like a freemium model. And it worked, it had its intended effect of driving people for the paid programs. It's, it's a trade-off of digital products. Yeah. And there are trade-offs with everything, incredibly low cost 
to digital products, so higher margins. But one of the downsides is, yeah, it's very easily shareable. But I mean, half of half of our business is built around giving people free stuff. We give away hundreds of hours of free content on our YouTube channel, for example, of our own internal podcast. You could go program all of your own diet or training yourself through all of this stuff. But people, you know, people love that. People love that we're helping them. So it's one of those things you got to kind of give in order to receive. So we're not worried about kind of giving away our trade secrets because we know that we're going to help so many more people by giving away all this free content that. I don't know. We're we're putting hopefully so much good stuff out there that you know hopefully someday it's you know maybe going to come back. Smart. You can watch all the YouTube content you want on your channel, but at the end of the day, it doesn't replace the human behind. And I think that's what a lot of people. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. We, we hire a trainer not only for the technical aspect, but for the inspirational aspect. Accountability. Yeah. Accountability. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Accountability yep. is yep. you. It's not bad for you to want somebody to help hold you accountable. No, no, not at all. I mean. If I was going to compete again, I would I would hire a coach. I mean, I can use our app 100% for, for 99% of it. But at the end of the day, usually you kind of just want someone to, I don't know, to, to, to sanity check yourself. Does this sound right? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, how many, think of all the business leaders out there that have coaches. I mean, there's a reason that you hire coaches. It's you want to learn more. You want to make sure that you're doing the best. And think about, especially when it comes to fitness, I don't know about you, but if you, do you ever do your own programming? Do I do my own programming? Yeah, every now and again. No, I, I go off your your stuff, the Excel spreadsheets you've sent me, and how I can plug and play. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do my own programming, but I don't know about you, but sometimes, like if I'm in charge of picking the exercises, it's really easy for me to pick the stuff that I don't like. If you have a coach, that's not the same because you're just going to follow their plan. So there's a ton of benefits to having a coach, and again, that's not just fitness; it goes for so many other things out there. I, I remember, so I had a trainer here in uh, Austin. It was early when uh, when I arrived here, and what I appreciated about him is he basically said at one point he said, "Hey man, like you're paying for this, and I'll drop you as a client if you're not going to take this seriously." And I was sort of offended at first. I'm like, "How dare you? I'm a paying client." But I mean, he had people lined up for his services, and he would only take so much. But if the person was not taking it seriously and demonstrating some self accountability and commitment and discipline, consistency, then he wasn't didn't want to work with him. Yeah, and I think uh, it's probably not something you can do when you first start out because you oh, kind of just need whatever. But yeah, as you get more well known, you can maybe be a little choosier, and I think that's fine because think about how much you're investing into a client. If they're not willing to reciprocate, then man, there's probably other people out there. If if, if your demand is high enough, because I remember working with, you know, I enjoy working the top level athletes because it's very cool watching them and all the work they put into it. it it's very rewarding if you're putting your own time and effort into something and someone's not giving that back i don't know why are you doing it yeah well we're about at uh, the mid-roll break as we call it and so we asked two questions as you know um if you listened to the previous podcast so first first one before we take the mid-roll break biggest regret of your life yeah so luckily you gave me a little heads up today and you're like hey think about these a little bit so honestly, maybe one of my biggest regrets was um, is RP was just starting to kind of take off. It required so much of my time that I wasn't able to devote any time to self-improvement, you know, continued education. And I think that maybe some of that success like kind of went to my ego a little bit, kind of went to my head. 
and I was maybe not as receptive to feedback. And I don't know exactly when that changed, or maybe I just got a little older and you know, hopefully more mature, knock on wood. Uh, I just realized that, that was really backwards. And so like looking back, I'm now so much on the self-improvement bandwagon that I kind of kicked myself that I missed a, a several year gap in there. So I would say that's probably my biggest regret. Did, did you want to get your PhD? You know what's funny? Sometimes because we have so many PhDs, yeah. I've been called doctor before and I just laugh because I'm like, I'm not a PhD. PhD, like, you know, the old saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong Fine, room. That's yeah. never been the case for me because we have so many smart I'm people. I'm glad to hear that. That makes two of us. <laughs> yeah. So that's ne- never going to be the case. So yeah, I don't necessarily have um, interest in that because my interests lie in other areas. No. no. But you are, from, from following you, man, I never, you know, I know you're busy, so I don't reach out, but I, are you guest le- lecturing at the University of Michigan for, for the uh, kinesiology students? Um, every now and again, I, I've been asked and it's not, I don't, it's not really a guest lecturer per se. It's more of a share your experience. Oh, that's a lecture. In some respects. Yeah, I guess. So are you pretty heavily, heavily involved with the University of Michigan in the, the sports management program? Um, we have a scholarship set up at uh, the University of Michigan in the kinesiology program. Uh, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Uh, I didn't, you know, I had to take out student loans to get through college and, you know, all that stuff had to work multiple jobs. So to be able to give back and help students, uh, several students, you know, per semester, per year now we're able to do uh, is, is incredibly fulfilling. And there's a computer laboratory in their new kinesiology building that I was able to um, help with. So that's like, you know, it's Nick Shaw RP, like yeah, it's, 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 it's honestly, man, it's so fulfilling that it's, I, I can't even maybe describe it. That is, that is freaking awesome. Let me ask this then. I mean, not that this would be the purpose. Did you guys use the University of Michigan as a talent pool? Uh, you know, most of our, most of our hires come from referrals of our people anyways, but we've definitely, I've, I've had numerous people reach out that were students uh, after I've done some guest lectures. So yeah, it's absolutely could be a thing. And it, yeah, it's really interesting because a, a, a lot, several of our coaches or folks that help in customer service were actually students of my colleague, Dr. Mike, when he taught at Temple. Well, guess what? If you know that there's a few standout students that you know, get good grades or always turning their work in on time, who do you think you're going to reach out to when you need some help? It's going to be those kids that are crushing it. For uh, the kids listening, uh, do you do internships for those kids? Um, sometimes. It really just depends. Uh, and it's just kind of a case-by-case basis. Usually it's my buddy, Dr. Mike, who will need some help doing some some content for social media or something like that. Yeah, uh, no better place. I mean, we, we poach out of St. Edwards. Again, Will, Michelle, Naira all went to, uh, to St. Edwards. Um, last question before the mid-roll break, hardest decision you've ever had to make? Man, that one's tough. Ain't meant meant to be easy. That's why we call them the hard questions. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I would say anytime we've ever had to let someone go at RP, I hate that. And I, it never makes me feel good. It's just, it's one of the worst feelings in the world that you can have, I think. So I would say anytime we have to do that. You know George Silva well. George Silva is my right-hand man. We, we, we talk about this all the time is I've told him I never want to let another person go, which means one, we need to be thorough on who we bring in. But if they don't work out, first place I look is the new. Yeah. Was I involved enough? Did I mentor and coach? Did I put enough time into that person? If they were displaying, let's say, less than desirable effort, then how come we didn't inspire them to, to action? So I, I, I'm with you, man. Because at the end of the day, that's the mechanism people use to put food on their table. It never sits well with me. Yeah, no, 
I, I mean, it's terrible. I, it's, I can't think of a worse feeling in the world. That's that's the most uh, one of the most honest answers we, we've had. So we're going to take a mid-roll break, and we'll be right back. And we are back with Nick Shaw. Dude, well, when we, when we take a break, for those listening, you can also watch this on YouTube. Usually it's a, a bathroom break. So, you know, Nick and I were using the bathroom. We continue to talk where most good ideas happen. You bring up a point because your last answer about the hardest uh, decision you've ever had to make is letting someone go. And, you know, we brought up some great points. One of the things that I've learned and reflected on is why is the Army, the Marine Corps, military services so successful with basically, and I don't want to say brainwashing. It's not. I hate when people say that about the military. It's... Basically, the boot camps or, or officer candidate schools are the ultimate form of an onboarding process where they fully explain, and of course, they have the luxury of three months for 24-7 to explain, here are the behaviors and the values of our organization. This is how you must behave. This is how you will be evaluated. Here are the expectations on you. If you don't meet these, they hold them accountable almost instantaneously. There is no better form than accountability to get somebody to assimilate to the organization very early on. And they may seem that, that, that may seem to them in my opinion, like micromanagement, if you explain that you're doing it for a reason, it's not micromanagement. I think that, and this is my humble opinion, it curbs great onboarding programs, a lot of attention early on, a lot of accountability up front, curbs that need to let people go unless you got the wild incidents like COVID where just you know certain industries had to shut down because sales stop. And I understand the need to cut overhead in those situations. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And just as you're saying that, it, um, I don't know, just, it kind of makes me reflect of, you know, we, we had, you had chatted about how do we kind of recruit people. And as I hear you say that, I'm just like, man, I don't know how good of a job we do at that. Obviously we can always do better, but because we hire a lot from referrals and folks that already know other folks that are working at RP, there may be a lot of that. And I think that accountability aspect, because if you're working with someone that, you know, you were referred to and they're like a friend, man, I feel like the accountability is going to be higher. Like you don't want to let that person down because you have that already established connection with them. It's a little bit different if it's, a, you know, a random person. It's maybe a little bit less of that, but it's, it's kind a, of that. They're a known factor. To some yeah. degree, the, the referral program is the best form of, of hiring. It would be like if you referred me to work with one of your friends or, you know, a colleague, man, I'm going to make sure that I'm doing everything in my power to deliver the best service, you know, the best results that I can, because otherwise I feel like I'm letting you down. So maybe that's, I don't want, it's no, no secret to our success or anything, but I think that could be a pretty big element because we do hire, you know, so much from uh, referrals. When you get to a point as a business where you don't have to go look for talent, talent comes to you. And I'm sure you guys are getting constant emails. Hey, I'd love to be part of your staff. That's, you know, I want to say, I'll use the, the, the phrase you've arrived. Don't get cocky. That's when. Yeah, no, no I mean, never. I, I, I kind of have the mindset. Uh, did you ever watch the, uh, the last dance Michael Jordan oh, documentary? One of the best documentaries I've seen. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm never really worried about being content because I sort of always, I don't know. I don't know whether it's cause I'm the youngest child or I'm from a small town or whatever it is, but I always feel like I kind of have that proverbial, you know, chip on my shoulder. So I'm not too worried about uh, becoming too content. Um, and, and I always just think back to like, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, he would always just look for something to whatever kind of edge he could get. I mean, he was never short for motivation. Let's just no. say that. And he found a way to, I, I don't want to use the word hate, but somebody would say something and you have to take it as a form of hate to, to get motivated, which 
Hey, that drone. I've, I've got to get him on the uh, the podcast, especially him and Phil Jackson. Those two were uh, uh, inspirational and, and got their their icons. And, of you know, I grew up in the Midwest, and I'm actually from Michigan. So you would think, oh, well, you probably like the Pistons. No, 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 no. I was I was a Bulls Jordan fan all the way, man. I had the jersey, I had the shorts, I had the warm up. I was the, the biggest MJ fan. That was the best documentary in the world. Brought back so much nostalgia from the '90s. I could watch that again and again. Well, and the thing too is, you know, we grew up in that era, but watching the documentary, you you find out so many of the details that were going on behind the scenes that you just weren't privy to at that age. And that was, uh, I, I never knew the the rivalry between that era of the you know, Bill Lambert, Lambert uh, Pistons and the, the Bulls was that. Yeah, oh yeah, I remember. I, I mean, I hated the Pistons. Hated them. And I'm from Michigan. Like, it seems kind of weird, but... Where I grew up was like literally halfway between Detroit and Chicago. And in every other sport, I, you know, rooted for the Detroit team. But, you know, obviously as a 8, 10, 12-year-old kid, I mean, it's, it's probably like the Steph Curry effect now or LeBron yeah. James effect. Like, it doesn't matter where you live. You're probably a fan of them because they do so well and they win. So, yeah, it was Team Jordan all the way. You know, you threw out the names like Curry and, um, you know, the other players in this era. In my book, they're still not Michael Jordan. He, they, they, they broke the mold with that one. It's like Tiger Woods. There will never be another Tiger yeah. Woods. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm biased too, but yeah, I would agree with that when people are talking about the, the GOAT or whatever in NBA. I'm like, listen, it's, it's MJ number one. You're, everyone else is kind of fighting for it. At the, the best, we'll give him one B, but like there's only one, one A. We, we were talking with George Silva today, and he's like, I hated, I hated uh, Tom Brady. And the answer, or the question is why? Because he was so good. People hate him because he was so good. And by the way, I love Tom Brady because he's a Michigan guy. So. I do. That's, that's true. Well, he also, my, my nephews went to the same high school, Sarah High School. So, so Nick, before we, we you know, a lot of, a lot of the uh, listeners want to get into the, just the, the, the hard facts, the, the basic principles of, of diet and training. But before we do, I, I've got two questions for you, man. One, people see you now. And all they see is the success. They see the tip of the iceberg. Talk to me about some of the, the trying times that nobody knew or saw you go through, as well as, well as Lori and your partner, that, that you probably don't talk about much. But was there ever a moment you're like, God, this, this, this business model is going to fold? Or it's not growing as quickly as we need? And- yeah, I mean, there's probably no times where I thought, oh, we need to fold this up. Because even if the digital product thing would have never taken off, I was still just doing what I loved. And I was coaching people. Like, that, was, that would be an absolute worst case option. But yeah, I mean, there's just so many, we've had so many different products that we've tried to release that just tanked. I mean, I remember my buddy telling me these evening hunger diet templates were going to change the world or we had an ebook called Understanding Healthy Eating. And as it was getting ready to release, we're like, man, like, I, are we going to be able to handle all the Oprah appearances? And it's like, no, you know, no one, no one gives a crap about, you know, quote unquote healthy eating. Like a lot of people, they want to, they want to know, like, what do I do to sort of look better, feel better, you know, perform better, all that. And so it's just, it, yes. And that's always going to be the case. So there's just always, more slip ups and failures and all that that you know people don't see and I think we talked about this earlier but you really only see the, the highlight reel on social media and that's a really weird effect because I think a lot you know it just skews people's perceptions but you know if you really want to break it down and be vulnerable man we've, we've failed so many times I can't even count them that, that begs a question dude do you feel like you've arrived yet 
or do you feel like there's so much work left to be done? Uh, I'm a big fan of like the mastery mindset and I, growth mindset. What what is what does arrived mean? I don't know. Oh yes, I, I love the process. I, I love what I'm doing. Like there's no point at which I'll ever feel that I really arrived. Now that being said, there's an interesting dichotomy there. Where does that mean I'm not grateful? No, man, I'm I'm so grateful for for where we're at and you know what we've been able to do and you know all the people we've been able to help. Like I'm so incredibly grateful for that. But you know on the flip side. The, you know, mastery mindset. Um, there's no real set like outcome or goal. Like, do I have goals? Yes, of course I do. Right. But it's, I, I love, I love the process as much as anything. So it's not like I'm, I, I'm ever going to stop. I've, I've always found and amongst all the high performers I've served with, whether in the SEAL teams or any other profession or industry, common trait is that when they get to the, you know, we make audacious you know, big goals. When they got to the goal, there may be a quick little celebration, but it's almost like you could see them just get quiet. And there was no no real value in that end state. They almost almost instantaneously went to like, what's the next ridge line? It, it was the journey that was, you learned so much about yourself of whether you're going to quit, you're going to persevere, if you have resiliency. But once you actually get to that end state of, oh, I'm at 6% body fat, it's almost like, okay, well, what do I do now? Yeah, man. I mean, that's exactly what happened because you know, I just did a little diet for quote unquote fun. And I mean, yeah, it was, it was cool to, to see the end results and you kind of see all that hard work pay off. But I kind of immediately went to like, but now what's next? What else can I do? You know, well, how do I, how do I keep this? How do I maintain this? And I thought to myself, damn, that was fun. What can I, what can I do next? That's just how it is. It's insane. I want to talk about COVID, man. And, and you just talked about vulnerability. Um, the COVID period was a little different for you. I know everyone struggled in some degree. Some people were isolated, but you, one, you're finishing up a book, Fit for Success, which is, I was impressed, man. It is not what I thought the book was going to be. I mean, you focus on tying fitness to just overall positive habits and living living well, living a, a fulfilling, purpose-driven, impactful life, um, a high-achieving life. But during that same time frame, Maury comes down with a say an aggressive form of breast cancer. Yeah, she she's fine now, by the way, which I think you know really really kind of changes the story a little bit. But um, yeah, it was a lot, man. Um, you know, it was right around my son's eighth birthday. He's ten now. She was diagnosed. You know, she had surgery. She started chemo. I was able to go with her to the very first treatment. And then, like, no joke. And actually, you, Dan Luna was like the last person at her house. <laughs> uh, I think literally the day I took him back to the airport was March twelfth, twenty twenty, and that's like right when basically the whole U.S. shut down. Damn. And yeah, man, it was just a really trying time because my wife had to go to chemo you know, by herself. Our kids were being quarantined, couldn't go to school. We had to homeschool them. How the hell are we going to navigate an online fitness company during a pandemic? You know, what's next? There was just a lot. Of, of it just it was like a snowball effect of like anything that could go wrong seemingly was going wrong and you know looking back man I'm really pretty proud of the way that uh, our family was able to navigate all that it was there was there ever a pivotal moment where you just broke down maybe you're by yourself portion of the home you just sort of I mean not necessarily but there's one moment that stands out above all the others and we knew my wife was going to lose her hair. So we took more of a proactive approach because we couldn't control that aspect of it. But we all came together and I shaved my head, which like, you know, whatever. Uh, my son shaved his head. Uh, I shaved my wife's head, which is an interesting thing to you know say and look back on. And then, uh, you know, my daughter, she was six at the time. I'm not going to shave her head because she's six. 
but we just did a little strip along the side of her head and you know it just kind of it, it flipped the script for us because it was kind of no longer we're not the the victims of external circumstances no like we have a real control we have a say over what's going on in our lives and I just always look back at that as like the moment where, yeah, there was a lot of bad stuff going on, but that didn't, that wasn't going to dictate our lives. Like I never want external stuff to really dictate my life. Like, no, 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 I'm not a victim. I'm not going to set back. I always have a say in what is going to happen or what the outcome is going to be. And even if that's just changing my own personal attitude, man, that's enough sometimes. Did that experience help solidify certain things in the book? I mean, not necessarily that you, you, you talked about that, but did that situation and what you learned about yourself and your family? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's one thing I, I kind of be, had become obsessed with like studying what made people successful, you know, whether it's working with high level athletes or you know, reading books on success in any field, you name it. It's one thing to think about all these things and, and all that, but it's another when you really have to truly live live it every single day. And that's when I kind of realized where I was, I was like, yeah, I, I'm quarantined. I can't go anywhere for a few months, but I'm not going to let that sort of define me. It's like, no, this has happened. What can I do? How can I make some good come of this? And that's when I sat down and basically, you know, wrote out the rough draft and handed it over to an editor. And I'm like, let's rock and roll. Like, this is going to get out this year. This is going to go, this is going to be released before 2020 ends because I know, or I hope that it's helped me. And I, knowing that so many other, literally everyone else in the entire world was impacted by COVID too, that I know it has the potential to help other people. Two themes in the book that I love. You talk about the external and internal focus of control. Uh, the external being very particular uh, or, or very, very interesting to me because I think this is what a lot of people struggle with. And there's almost with the, the external locus to control, there's a little bit of uh, parallel in terms of stoicism of don't spend bandwidth on the things you can't control and focus on what you can't. Yeah, I remember reading uh, many books about stoicism. That was kind of like... I the one of the big things that led me down to that whole internal locus of control idea because there's just going to be things you can't control at times so why let it stress you out why let it bother you too much why not again even even if you you know change your attitude about something like maybe you can't actually take action in the physical sense to change whatever's going on but you can change how you view it and sometimes that's enough a lot of people suffer from that especially with the again social media driving so many people crazy is i think the term is doom scrolling where people will just sit on news scrolling the whole day just with the negativity i've almost had to, i've stopped do you watch the news no but, but, but in the military we did they always said it was part of the professional you know your professionalism is staying abreast of current events international events now it's I, I've, I've got to turn it off. No, no. I mean, I don't even watch the news because it's like, well, I don't know. Why do you want to be tuned in to so much negativity? I, I couldn't agree more. Well, I, you know, for a lot of these people and for the listeners, again, I've convinced Nick to come on as a main contributor for Men's Journal, The Everyday Warrior, uh, really on the lifestyle, the self-help, and of course, the fitness and diet, which is, he's, he's a national, I'll say it, national subject matter expert, but I want to dive in shortly to diet and training. And I want you to approach this from a, a standpoint of, well, here's even the thing. Some people who consider themselves intermediate in the gym still don't have the foundational aspects of diet and training. What, there is so much bad information out there, bro science, because a lot of people have followers on Instagram. I mean, they look great and I'm going to give that to them and, and I, would, I would never rob somebody of a compliment. They look good, but they're putting, I mean, hell, I even see one guy who's... Uh, eating pine cones and, uh, and, and nothing but liver. And that's great. 
Uh, you, you know who I'm talking about? What are the foundational aspects of a training regimen and especially diet for, for our listeners to just to start to do some investigative work on their own and start to lay the foundation to get back in shit? Yeah, I mean, there's we, we like to approach things from like a pyramid aspect of what's the most important that goes on the bottom and then you kind of build from that. So when it comes to nutrition, there's a few. Uh, I would say start with consistency. It's just like with training. If you're not being consistent, you're not showing up, you're not following your plan, you're not showing up to the gym and training, all this means nothing. So you have to be consistent. That's number one. Beyond that, on the nutrition side, it's really calorie balance. How much are you consuming? How much are you burning? There's more nuance than that, right? Don't get me wrong. Then you can get into like the quality of foods that you're eating. That's another variable. And for a lot of people, if you're just trying to eat healthy, if you eat higher quality foods, you control your calories by default. So I would say start with those few. And if you can get those mostly right, man, you're, you're very much on the right track. And, and some of the rest is really just minor details after that. You could get into, you know, things like nutrient timing, you know, the supplements, hydration. But if you can nail those first couple, I really think you're on the right track. A lot of people don't know about macros. Uh, explain briefly for the audience, I mean, how crucial this is to understand the concept of macros as it, as it relates to you know, your caloric intake yeah. and why they matter. Because everyone's defaulting to, to just eating. It's almost like people are on a food drip this, these days and they're just constantly eating. They don't know what they're eating. They're eating fast food. and I mean, their caloric intake is just through the roof. Yeah, a lot of people don't even know what macros is, so we'll try to keep it pretty short and simple. Macros 101, so there's three main macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fats. A good place to start is probably under proteins. Think of mostly lean meats, uh, dairy products, you know, fish, soy, you know, things like that. That's kind of where you want to start. Carbohydrates would be next. They get a lot of bad rap out there. A lot of people think you can't eat them. Kind of that makes you fat or whatever. That's that's not the case. It's really that calorie balance is, is the bigger driver there. But your carbohydrates are things like fruits and veggies, your whole grains. That's usually where we want to start the foundation. And then healthy fats are foods like your nuts, avocados, olive oils, and those tend to be a little bit more calorically dense. But again, you usually want to start with those basics because we always want to start with the basics first. Grasp the basics first before you start to move you know, higher up into the more minor details. And that's just kind of, that's macros 101. So, you know, and you said carbs get a bad rap, but when somebody's not really tracking a diet, they're usually, their, their intake is, is overwhelmingly carbohydrates. Uh, carbs is, is that pretty accurate? Well, carbs and fats, because so what happens is, this, I don't think it's going to be a shocker to you, but people enjoy eating tasty foods. What usually is tasty foods? It's not necessarily carbs by themselves. It's not necessarily just sugar by itself. But what are the really tasty foods? Think of a donut. Think of processed foods, you know, like cake and pastries and all that stuff. It's, well, they usually have a lot of carbs and sugar. They also have a lot of fat in them. They also usually have a lot of salt. They're designed to taste good. There's a reason for that. So let's sort of eliminate that as much as we can. Let's eat higher quality foods, your basic foods that we already listed. And if you start there, like I said, do that and you more or less control for your calorie balance by default. So that's why a lot of diets say don't eat X, don't eat Y, don't eat Z. Well, it's because they're mostly just chopping out those foods, Mm -hmm. those hyper palpable foods that taste really good. Those are incredibly easy to overeat. Think you go out and you get, you know, a cheeseburger with fries and nachos and a couple beers. And all of a sudden, like how many calories is that? All that stuff tastes delicious. It's designed to taste like that, right? Restaurants aren't stupid. They want to make money. They want to keep you coming back. 
So again, I'm not saying don't ever eat that stuff. You can and should, you know, in moderation. But if you want to control for your body weight, control for calories, focus on higher quality foods. I, I've got to assume that the overwhelming majority of people fail to reach their fitness goals, not because of their training regimen, but because of the diet. Yeah. And it's, I think I touched on earlier, the, the bodybuilding is hard because it never leaves you because what you, what you eat is, is something you have to monitor around the clock. And it's the same. I mean, just think of the kind of environment we live in where everything's instant gratification and, you know, every corner you see, well, I mean, here you see bars, fast food. Yeah, fast food or, you know, all these delicious tasting foods and setting your environment up in a way that makes you more likely to succeed is a huge part, is a huge component of fitness. I mean, if you have a bag of Oreos or you have junk food setting out on your counter all day long at home, man, I don't care if you have the world's strongest, greatest willpower over time, it's going to wear you down. So try to set your environment up to be as productive and hopefully in a way that makes you more likely to succeed. So a lot of times they give the examples of if you're a morning workout person, set your workout stuff next to your bed. Yeah, it doesn't make or break it, but it's just going to make it a little bit easier. And when you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, oh, shit, I don't want to go work out. But your stuff's right there and you see it as kind of just this little cue that just helps. It just helps. It makes things a little bit easier, just a little bit easier. You just used uh, two words, instant gratification, which automatically, I'm, I'm sure you're like me, you call that the hack. People are always looking for the hack, the shortcut to, to how can I lose 30 pounds in 30 days? There, there's, have you ever heard of the marshmallow experiment? Oh yeah. I'm, uh, I'm very familiar with that. There's a book, uh, yeah, yeah, followed up. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of the, you know, can you, can you delay that gratification? Can you have two marshmallows later if you give up the one now in front of you? Yeah. It's, uh, uh Walter Michel, I believe it's the guy's name. And, and so for the listeners, basically they, they started with children and they told the, the children, Hey, I'm going to leave the room. This marshmallow is right here. If you don't eat it and I come back, you'll, you'll get a second marshmallow. Yep. And some kids ate the marshmallow. Others waited and received the, the reward. They demonstrated delayed gratification. Well, they followed them for years. And what they found were those that had the willpower, the discipline uh, to, to demonstrate delayed uh, gratification were ultimately more successful in life. Yeah. So if you have the ability to think a little bit longer term. So to me, instant versus delayed gratification comes down to your time horizons. Do you think in the span of right here, right now? Or do you think of the span of what's actually going to be best for me? in a few months or a few years from now. And I think that successful people in general tend to view things with a longer term time horizon. They're willing to delay gratification a bit more and they're willing to make the trade-offs that come with, yeah, I'm okay taking a little less now because I know in the long run, I'm going to get more. And when you approach it like that, I think it changes the game in a huge way. Well, it's funny with, with fitness, because in, in my opinion, you see people who want to get in shape, which is a great thing. I, I love that when somebody makes the, the, the commitment to get in shape, but they've done damage to their body for five, three, two years. And they think they're going to get back to where they were previous to that within you know two months, three months, four months. And that's just not the, uh, the case. Uh, you know, I often said to, to people part of, and, and I know you're all about this because you talked heavily about positive habits within uh, Fit for Success, your book, which people, are, you got to pick this thing up. Um, and, and basically part of the journey is learning those positive habits so that when you have it, because if somebody offered you a pill 
said, hey, if you take this, you're going to look like this guy in the magazines. You're going to have six-pack abs, but they would lose it as quickly as they got it with that pill because they did not establish the lifestyle they haven't established the, the positive habits yeah. and they'll just resort back to stopping at the fast food. It's, it's kind of like, I think they say that, you know, a lot of times lottery winners go broke again. Right. Cause you know, nothing really changes, right. They just happen to get a bunch of money, but their the underlying habits and sort of mindset and attitudes that they have doesn't really change. So again, it goes back to the, the time horizon. And if it took you five years to get out of shape, is it going to take you five weeks to get back in shape? No. And I, I love that people get really motivated and they want to get back into it, but just come in with a, a mindset and an approach that it's going to take a little bit longer than you might think, but you're going to be so much better off in the long term because you're going to establish those good habits. And so if you can hopefully establish good habits after a while, you know, it, it kind of seeps into just more of like your, your identity. And then I think when you can make that shift of going from, you know, maybe you have to remind yourself to, to go work out, but then when you start to say to yourself, you know, I'm the type of person that enjoys working out or I'm the type of person that goes to the gym. It's a subtle shift. It's a subtle difference. Man, it makes a big difference in the, the ability to sustain that consistently for months and years to come. I was talking with a friend uh, last week and we were talking about, you know, because I've always defaulted to now with my hip injuries, I can still be extremely lean. So I focus on lean muscle mass and reducing my body fat. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm not into that vanity thing. And my reply to that was bullshit, bullshit. Who does not want to look their very best? Who does, anyone who says otherwise in my book that doesn't want you know, their, their, their physique to look that good is, I'll say it lying. Listen, I think it's totally fine to, to want to look good. And, and so that, that's an interesting thing because sometimes, you know, people kind of fit shame folks. Like, you know, almost like it's a bad thing to want to look better or perform better or something. Well, why? Why? Right? Like, because it's, if you ever did the opposite, oh boy, oh, you're going to get in trouble. So why is it okay to fit shame? But, you know, it doesn't, you know, doesn't go both ways. But hey, if you want to get better and look better. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Because you'll carry yourself different. You will, you, you will act differently. Your confidence will, will increase. Now, you, you talked about specificity. Now, if you're a marathon runner, and I've, you know, when I trained for Everest, I stopped almost upper body. I won't say entirely, but it wasn't the focus for my last three months before leaving. I lost a lot of muscle mass, but um, I was very focused on lower body strength, especially with my hip and, and my glutes. So I get it when that, that, that doesn't match up with your specific goals. That, that, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, sure. But you made the conscious choice to have the trade-offs. You were training for a specific purpose and you made the choice that, oh, I'm, I'm okay willing to trade off upper body strength because I need more time to devote to lower body. And it's the same, like I just recently did a pretty kind of tough diet and I had to make the choice where some of my running for cardio, I had to give that up and training jujitsu, I kind of had to give that up for the last month or so. And I was fine making that trade off because I knew the goal that I wanted to achieve and I was fine making those choices and trade-offs and it wasn't really a big deal to me. Absolutely. Let's, let's get into training. Um, and I think we've hit that diet is, is, you know, I don't want to put percentages off and hear people put percentages that it's 70% diet, 30% your training regimen. But what can you say again for a beginner and intermediate uh, person with their workouts? What are, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make with their training regimen? Um, not training with proper form and technique would be one and not training with a full range of motion. So if you can do those things, you're going to be better off and you're going to be on the right track. And I would say if you're a beginner, like, there's no reason to think you have to be perfect or you have to be in the gym every day. If you can consistently make it into the gym two, three times a week, I mean, let's actually be honest, you don't even need to get to the gym. 
mean, for folks that are following you know, Everyday Warrior, like we're going to have some gym-free workouts that you can do from RP. Like, you don't, like, I, don't, I think people get caught up in thinking everything has to be perfect sometimes. That's not the case. Consistency is more important than perfection. How, you know, one of the things I see for people that are in the gym often, and I mean, you talk about progressive overload, periodization, is that they're switching up their workouts. They, they'll, they'll get a new workout from some influencer, stick with it for three weeks, they don't see results, and they, they switch it again. What can you say about the, the, the process uh, of training and sticking with a, uh, a certain regimen? Yeah, you, you have to be consistent. You have to keep showing up. I don't think you could judge a workout program after three weeks, maybe after three months. But if you're hopping between stuff every three weeks, like the chances of you seeing success overall, I think are pretty low. What, what are some of these cycles? And I know it, it varies again on people's goals, but what, what, are, the, what are your standard, standard periodization cycles for workouts? Is it mean, one month, two months, three months? Yeah, there's a lot of variability there depending on where someone is. But I mean, I would say as is is maybe a general rule of thumb, yeah, like four to six weeks, probably yeah. something yeah. like that, where you kind of train, yeah, kind of doing the same stuff, but adding a little bit over time each week. And you, you know, you can only you can only do that for so long before you need to take a little bit of a break, and then you kind of reset, choose some new exercises or whatever, and then you kind of keep repeating that same process. Could in theory, I stick with the same core workouts and just use progressive over- overload with those. Again, those periodized sort of cycles. Yeah. And again, if you have a barbell at home or you have a couple of dumbbells, there's just some little things that you can do to make some really minor tweaks for variation. For example, the way you turn your feet in a squat or the, the width of your grip on certain presses. So it's not like you have to do anything crazy or you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can make some really easy minor tweaks and you can still get some of those those variation uh, benefits. So again, you, you said we're going to be posting a workout from RP. That's your, your your contribution to a lot of people that are just looking to get started out there, maybe the home gym centric. Um, I, I will say personally for those that are in the gym, consider themselves to be in the intermediate to advanced range, check out RP Strength. Uh, the, the website is, where can they find you? RPStrength.com is our website. I would say before that, hey, give us a follow on uh, social media. Check out RP Strength on Instagram. Uh, there's just a lot of great content, some cool transformations, a lot of educational content, some, you know, some funny memes. A little bit of humor goes a long way. And um, you know, myself is uh, at nick.shaw.rp on Instagram. Thank God you didn't have www.renaissanceperiodization.com. That we did for a time. <laughs> I would have been stuck on Renaissance for uh, quite a while. You know, it's funny because, you know, thank goodness for Google. So if you try typing it in, again, like I can barely spell it myself. So you just try typing it in. Usually Google kind of know what you're trying to get to and they'll kind of autofill it for you. So uh, that that helps. Funny story. When you tried out for Marine Recon, they had, you know, the psychological screening, the, the physical test, which was long. And at the very end, they made you spell out reconnaissance. And people knew that going in, but people still screwed it up. And that would, it wouldn't necessarily get somebody kicked out of the process, but they would get hazed quite a bit if they screwed that uh, that piece up. Funny. Um, what are the resources? Your YouTube has over, what, 300,000 followers. You said your Instagram has over 600,000. Yeah, yeah. Those are both great spots. I mean, you can basically get a college-level education on our YouTube channel for free. You know, it's uh, my, my buddy, Dr. Mike Isertel. I mean, he's such a character. He's such a entertainer but he's just he's a great teacher as well uh man there's just you can learn so much that it's it's ridiculous 
you know, we talk sometimes about the bad of the internet and stuff, but man, just picture 20 years ago thinking that you could do all this stuff. You know, how, how grateful are we for technology and just all the good things that has come from it where you can go learn anything you want to online now for, you know, for, for free most of the time. Oh, the good and the bad of access to information um, and the responsibility of utilizing it. Uh, where can people find the book? Fit for Success is Amazon usually the best. Yeah, it's on Amazon and it's on uh, Audible. Yeah, pick it up. I think you guys will be wildly surprised. I uh, took a lot of value from uh, from reading it. But yeah, thank uh, you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, Nick, similar to the mid roll, we end this with two additional questions. Uh, questions that are dear to me. Questions I still struggle with, dude, and I probably will struggle with until the uh, the day I die. But how will Nick Shaw evaluate whether he's lived a purpose filled? fulfilling an impactful life. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a really easy one. Uh, if I'm able to help as many people as I possibly can, and kind of the number that I have in my head is, you know, at least a million people. And if I can do that, I know I've made a difference. And, you know, hey, I truly believe that I was kind of put here to, to help people, to give back. And, you know, I, I think I'm doing that. I'm trying to do that to the best of my ability. And yeah, that's kind of one of my goals. So if I can get there, then I know it's all been worth it. Dude, I, I've got to imagine that you guys get personal emails from your clients that lost 50, 100 pounds, and they're like, you guys have like literally well, changed my life. so funny enough, the, when we took our little uh, mid-break, there was a lady that had come down, and I mean, she had, she showed me her before picture and where she is now, and I mean, you wouldn't believe it was the same person, and she started last February, so 14 months ago, probably 30, 40 pounds different, and she was like, I you know, used to have some blood sugar issues, and I mean, now she's in perfect health. There's, I mean, there's honestly no you know, greater feeling than like seeing someone. Cause it's one thing to read that online, which is cool. Don't get me wrong. But when you meet someone in person, like you've, you know, helped kind of by proxy or by default, you know, literally change their life. It's, it's, you know, that's how I know that I'm at least hopefully on the right track for, you know, living, living life the right way. So you wrote a book called Fit for Success. What are those one to three sort of tenants, those non-negotiables, your, your keys to success. And if it's five, it's five. Personally? No, no, no. Uh, just publicly. Yes, personally. So... Can yeah. I be honest with you? <laughs> one is internal versus external locus of control. That's obviously a big one to me. I just try to stay focused on what I can actually have some say over. Um, two would be having a longer-term time horizon, not getting caught up in the here and now, more so than the long-term and uh, number three is I really try to live by the idea and the principle of the slight edge. And that just says you keep showing up, you keep doing these little things day after day, even when it feels like you're not making any progress, but you keep doing them anyways, because you know in the long term that uh, it's going to sort of compound over time. And the tricky part is, and I don't know what the timeline is exactly, but the hardest part is early on when you're doing these little things, but it feels like you're not making any progress whatsoever, yeah. or even it feels like you're going backwards, but you keep trekking forward because you know in the long term, whatever that is, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, if you keep going, you're going to start to hit that point where it starts to become more exponential. And you know that's probably, that might be the biggest thing that I really try to truly live, eat, breathe, sleep every single day. Slide edge. Slight Edge. It's actually a great book. I'd recommend it. It's written by Jeff Olson. Everyone read that. I think it might, you know, has the potential to change the world. Change lives. Well, Nick, I can't thank you enough. I'm looking forward to the future, man, and all the content we're going to produce. Uh, you know, I really hope with the Everyday Warrior, we can take a different approach 
to what you see in a lot of the magazines of it's just recycled content is hitting the basics and the foundations and not having a article that says get six pack abs with these six uh, exercises. So I'm going to, I'm going to depend and lean on you to keep us honest uh, with that, that content. Play the long game. Long game. All right, guys. Well, again, to our listeners, we cannot thank you enough. This was the men's journal everyday warrior podcast with Mike Sorelli, our guest, Nick Shaw, We'll post all the links where you can find them, all the valuable content that they do on YouTube and his company. Please, please go check him out. And uh, for those that love to read, pick up the book, Fit for Success. All right. That's live here from Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Nick, did you have one more thing to say? Uh, Thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal Magazine. Men's Journal Magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening.